The following podcast with Greg Laurie is made possible by Harvest Partners, helping people everywhere know God. Become a Harvest Partner at Harvest.org. While you're there, check out our website for Christian women. It's called Virtue. Go to Harvest.org forward slash Virtue. Pastor Greg Laurie reminds us of the important role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Spirit shows you you need God, and you may even remember when it dawned on you, I'm a sinner, I'm depraved, I'm separated from God, I'm in trouble. That's the work of the Spirit. But why does the Spirit convict us of our sin? To drive us to despair? No, to send us into the open arms of Jesus. Across the land there's a change coming It's a new beginning, a new beginning People getting ready, there's a new creation A new beginning Old things have passed away This is a brand new day It's a new beginning It hits us like a ton of bricks Sin, we're sinners standing before a holy God It's a terrifying realization. But then that wave of relief washes over us, that Jesus paid for our sins, and we can stand clean before God because of the righteousness of Christ. For some, that realization takes a lifetime. For others, a few seconds. Today on A New Beginning, Pastor Greg Laurie shows us the Holy Spirit ushers us along that spiritual journey. You know, sometimes people ask me why I do what I do. And I would give a very simple answer to that question, which is this. I believe all of this stuff is true. Now, I don't say that to boast as though I have greater faith than you have, because I know most of you believe the same. But I really believe these things that we read in the Bible are true. For instance, I really believe what the Bible says when it tells us that life is a vapor of smoke that appears for a moment then vanishes away. I really believe that there is an eternity. There is an afterlife and there really is a heaven and there really is a hell. I really believe that only those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ will go to heaven. And I also believe And I need to give this message to as many people as possible. Now this is not all I believe, but this is a a good degree of it, a good part of it that is at the forefront of my heart and mind. And I do what I do because I see people every day pass into eternity that have heard this message. I received a letter recently from a girl named Lisa. Lisa came to Christ at one of our Harvest Crusades a few years ago here in Southern California. She's then moved to Philadelphia and she writes me and said, and I quote from her letter now, where do broken hearts go? Can they find their way home? The answer is yes if you go home to Jesus. Back to loving arms that help you see it through. My younger brother went to sleep one night and never woke up. He was 23 years old and he had just graduated from college. 
He had moved to Philadelphia after he graduated to take a break before he would go on to fulfill his dream of becoming a pilot. I found out the Harvest Crusade was coming to Philadelphia, so I took my younger brother with me to hear the gospel. He was not yet a believer. He went forward at the invitation and gave his life to the Lord, and God called him home on November 3rd, 2008, one month after his commitment to Christ. She concludes by saying, My brother lives today because of your ministry, and yes, we do have a broken heart because he is gone, but he is in the arms of Jesus, and that's where I will meet him again. Now that, that touches me, you see, because that's a soul that's in heaven because he believed the message of the gospel. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we want to get the gospel out. And that is why we're talking about God, because we want to know God. And the best way to know God is to first know about God. That's why we were placed on this earth, to come into a relationship with God and to know and glorify Him with our lives. So we're in this series that we're calling Essentials, What Every Christian Needs to Know About God. And we've learned a few things together. Let me just briefly review them before we uh, look at our topic today. We have discovered that God is omnipresent, which means that He is present everywhere. We discovered God is omnipotent, which means He's all-powerful. We discovered, of course, that He's omniscient, which means that He knows all things. We also discovered God is sovereign, which means that He is in control. He is king. He is master. He is aware of what is happening and is in control of it. We also saw that God is true. That He and He alone is the true God and His knowledge and words are true. And He is the final standard of truth. We discover that God is holy, righteous, and good. But not only that, but we discover that God is love. And God demonstrated His love toward us by coming to our world and walking among us as a man, Jesus Christ. He was deity in diapers. God became an embryo. He did not stay in the safety of heaven. He entered our world. He breathed our air. He shared our pain. He walked in our shoes. He lived our life. Then He died our death. No, Jesus did not become identical to us because we're sinners. But He became as identified with us as He possibly could. Though He was God in human form, yet He walked this earth as a man and experienced human pain, emotion, etc. And then of course in His death and His resurrection from the dead. So we talk about God as a Father. And we talk about God as a Son. And to some degree I can grasp those pictures, if you will, of God. Because you all have fathers. Or some of you are fathers. Uh, many of you have sons. Or you are a son. So these are ideas that we can grasp to some degree. But now we come to God as a spirit. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. A spirit is hard to grasp. A spirit cannot be seen with human eyes. And then if you use the King James verbiage, it gets even a little harder to grasp God the Holy Ghost. Uh-oh. All of a sudden it's a Scooby-Doo cartoon. Brr. A ghost. How do we understand something like this. How can God be a Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? The Bible teaches that God is a triune being, 
There is a trinity. Now some would protest and say, you cannot find the word trinity anywhere in the Bible. That's true. But you find the teaching of the trinity from Genesis to Revelation. But how could that be, some would say. Doesn't the Bible say in what the Jews call the Shema, that the Lord our God is one God, Deuteronomy 6.4. Yes. The Lord our God is one God. We worship one God, not multiple gods. We're not polytheistic. We're monotheistic. We worship one God. But yet the Bible teaches that God is a trinity. Not modes or manifestations of the same persons, but three persons who are all simultaneously active. In other words, the Father is not the same person as the Son, and the Son is not the same person as the Holy Spirit. There is one God, and this true God exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Not three gods, but one God. Three distinct persons, but one substance in perfect harmony. How could they be three in one? Uh, I could offer some analogies, but they're all going to break down quickly. I could say, we'll take water, for instance. You can have it in different ways. You can have water in liquid form in a glass. You can have water in steam form uh, on your stove. And then you can have water in frozen form in your refrigerator. The substance is the same, so there's water. Or we could say an egg. You could crack an egg and have a shell here and have a yolk here and have a white here and say they're all still an egg, right? But see, those analogies don't really do justice to what we're talking about when we're discussing God. The fact is, you can't really explain the Trinity. It was Jonathan Edwards who said, and I quote, uh, he felt it was the highest and deepest of all divine mysteries. Listen, if we could fully explain God, then we could fully explain the Trinity, but we can't fully explain either. It's been well said, try and explain this and you'll lose your mind. Try to explain it away and you'll lose your soul. You must believe in the Trinity to be a believer. You say, well, where do we find the Trinity in the Bible? Well, a number of places. Uh, we could start in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And we see God the Trinity at work in the creation of the world. If I were to ask you the question, who created the world, the heavens, the earth, and all the rest, you would respond by saying God. Because Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So there was the Father at work in creation. But check this out. Jesus was there as well. As a member of the Trinity, Christ was hands-on at the creation of everything. Because John 1-3 says, all things were made by Him and through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. And also we read in Colossians 1.16, speaking of Christ, by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, they were created by Him and for Him. So now the Bible's telling me that God the Father created the heavens and the earth. It's telling me that God the Son created all things. And then of course I go back to Genesis and I read in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the earth was, uh, was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all played a part in creation. In the book of Genesis, uh, one of the names that is used for God is Elohim, 
which means more than one. Not more than one God, but it's a unique word describing the nature of God. So we see the Trinity in action. Elohim, more than one. A triune being. Uh, For instance, in Genesis 3.22, we read of God saying, man has become one of us. Then we read in Genesis 11.6, God speaking, let us go down. Now, who was he talking to? Was God talking to angels? No. Because we're told in Genesis 1.27, we're created in the image of God. (laughs) That was the Trinity having a conversation. Perhaps one of the clearest examples of the Trinity in action, and as I said earlier, uh, all simultaneously active, is at the baptism of Jesus. Here we have Jesus, who is God in human form, going into the Jordan River to be baptized. God the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And God the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus in the form of a dove. The Trinity. And then we're told when we baptize people, we're to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let's talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit in particular. You know, when Jesus walked this earth, God in human form, He was there to touch. His disciples could hear the timbre of His voice. They could look at His uh, unique features. They could reach out and grab Him by the arm. But Jesus said He was going to leave them. He was going to ascend to heaven. And He promised He would leave them another helper. Uh, The word that is used uh, for the Holy Spirit is parakletes. One called alongside to help. He said in John 14, I'll pray the Father and I'll give you another helper that He may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him or knows Him. But He will dwell with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So Jesus is promising to His disciples then the Holy Spirit would be with them and would come in them. Now, as a result of Christ's death, resurrection from the dead, and and then the the, the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, every believer, when they put their faith in Christ, has the Holy Spirit living inside of them. And I'll talk more in our next message about the work of the Holy Spirit and the life of the believer. But I want to focus in this message a little bit more on the personality of the Holy Spirit and the work that He does here in this world. Because He has a specific work that He wants to do. And let's read about it now in John 16 verses 7 to 11. Jesus says, Nevertheless I tell you the truth that is to your advantage I go away. For if I go not away the Holy Spirit or rather the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart I'll send him to you. This is a big verse now. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Verse 9, of sin because they do not believe in me. Verse 10, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Finally, verse 11, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Notice that Jesus says, when he has come, he will convict. The Spirit is a him, not an it. Now I know that it's hard for us to grasp because we say, now wait, I read of the Spirit being like a mighty rushing wind in the day of Pentecost. Then I see Him coming upon the disciples in a divided flame of fire. And then I read about Him as a dove. So how could He be a him? Well, 
Jesus is called the bread of life. And he says he's a door. And then the Father is described as a consuming fire and a refuge. And he hides us into the shadow of his wings. Does that mean Jesus is a loaf of bread or a door? Or that the Father is a giant bird in heaven? Of course not. These are metaphors that are employed to help us to understand God better. So yes, the Spirit is compared to a dove or uh, a mighty rushing wind, but He's a person. He's a personality. And He has a specific work that He wants to do. You see, He has emotion. Uh, I could go and insult this microphone and it wouldn't care. Microphone, you're ugly. What does the microphone care? But if I said it to you, <laughs> you might be offended. And we have emotion. We have feelings, you see. Uh, my little granddaughter Stella, you know, when we uh, get out of the car, I have one of these little controls. You press the button and it beeps. means it's locked. And so as we're getting out of the car, I'll, I'll say to Stella, Stella, tell the car uh, goodbye. And she'll say goodbye. And I'll press up and beep. She'll say, the car just talked to me. She's only two and a half, okay? So then we go and we come back again and I'll say, Stella, say hello to the car. She'll go, hello car, press the button, beep, beep. It talked to me. She said the other day, I said, Stella, what's it saying? She said, it said, I love you. I said, cars don't say I love you. She said, yes, they do. She was convinced of it. An inanimate object does not express love, nor does it have emotion. The Spirit is not an object. He's a He, and He's come for a purpose. What is His purpose in His work that He wants to do in the world? Number one, the Holy Spirit has come to convict us of our sin. Or another way to put it, He has come to convince us of our sin. In fact, we read here in verse 8 and 9, When He has come, He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, of judgment. Not necessarily sins in general as much as sin. Uh, he has come to show us that we are sinners. The Holy Spirit takes the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus. He shows us it's true and that we need to turn to God. Without the convicting power of the Spirit, you would have never come to Jesus. The Spirit shows you you need God. There's nothing I can say to show you your need for Jesus. That's why when I'm praying Pray, non-believer, I will pray, Lord, convict them by your Holy Spirit. Because, you see, I can tell someone, Jesus has made my life fuller and better, and I have this joy and peace, and they'll think, well, that's fine for you. But what they need to realize is they are a sinner in need of a Savior. And guess what? That's the work of the Spirit. And you may even remember the day or even the moment when it dawned on you, I'm a sinner. <laughs> I'm depraved. I'm separated from God. I'm in trouble. That's the work of the Spirit. But why does the Spirit convict us of our sin? To drive us to despair? No. To send us into the open arms of Jesus. In fact, we read on the day of Pentecost that Simon Peter got up to preach. And he was speaking to some of the very people that were culpable in the crucifixion of Jesus. And as they listened to him speak, the Bible says in Acts uh, 2.37, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they cried out, what should we do? Interesting phrase there, cut to the heart. It means pierced in the heart. 
This phrase appears only here in the New Testament. It means to pierce or stab and it describes something that is sudden and unexpected. Stabbed in the heart. (laughs) And who is wielding this knife? Why it's the Holy Spirit. And we all know what it's like to come under that sudden conviction. Here's an interesting thing to consider. To stab someone in the heart, you have to face them. Doesn't say the Holy Spirit stabbed him in the back. We've all been stabbed in the back at one time or another. Someone has sweetness and light to our face. And as soon as we walk away, let me tell you about this guy. Stabbed in the back. And someone tells you, you know what that person is saying about you? Holy Spirit never stabs you in the back. He stabs you in the heart. Now I know that's sort of a graphic and unsettling phrase I'm using. But let's change our verbiage a little bit. And instead of thinking of a dagger or a knife, Let's think about a scalpel in the hand of a surgeon. See, I just found out I have cancer. And this surgeon who is a specialist knows how to remove it. And so he takes that scalpel and stabs me, if you will, and cuts away the cancer that could shorten my life or stop it altogether. Or another surgeon might take a diseased heart out of me and place a new heart in its place. And so the idea is here, yes, the Holy Spirit will stab you in effect, but it's not to destroy you. It's to show you your need for Jesus because He convicts us so we'll come to Jesus. Because number two, the Holy Spirit has come to bring us to Christ. Verse three, He comes to convince of sin because they do not believe in me. Showing me my need for Jesus. John 16, 13, Jesus says, When the Spirit comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak in His own. He'll speak only what He hears. And He will tell you what is yet to come. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit has come to show me my need for righteousness. Because in verse 10, Jesus says, To convince of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom. Now, I remember the first time I read that as a young Christian. And I thought, now wait a second, aren't these religious leaders, the Pharisees, very devout men? How could my righteousness exceed theirs? Here's how. Theirs was a false righteousness. Theirs was a self-righteousness. The Holy Spirit has come to say, buddy, you're not righteous enough in your own. You need the righteousness of Christ imputed into your account because you're a sinner. But if you'll trust in Jesus, this righteousness will be given to you. That's why the Holy Spirit has come. And so we realize that this is the work that He is doing in the world. He's a member of the Trinity with a specific work He has come to do. We're getting a much better picture of the Holy Spirit and His role in our lives. Pastor Greg Laurie with another message in his series, Essentials, What Every Christian Needs to Know. And if you'd like to preserve this insight, we can send the CD your way. What a great study to share with your family or a home fellowship group. Get in touch and mention the title of the message, The Holy Spirit and You, Part 1. We'll send it your way for just $6. Write to us at A New Beginning, Box 4000, Riverside, California, 92514, or call us at 1-800-821-3300. That's 1-800-821-3300. 
Pastor Greg, do you like Mexican food? I love it. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> but I, I often eat the you know the chips and salsa they serve as an appetizer, and then I'm not so hungry for the main course. Yeah. Uh, do you think our spiritual diet is sort of like that? You know, we snack on spiritual appetizers and then never really dig into God's Word? Yeah, no question about it. You know, we hear a little snippet of teaching on the radio here. We read a quick little thing over there, and we don't get what is called the whole counsel of God. The only way we're going to get that into our life is by reading through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But ah, That's a daunting task at times, isn't it? As you begin this great task, you don't know where, well, to start. Enter the Start Bible. By the way, that's start spelled S-T-A-R-T exclamation mark. So we might describe it as the Start Bible, (laughs) meaning that you want to get started. My sound man has blood dripping out of his ears right now. I yelled into the microphone, but we think he'll recover. But you want to get started on the right foot and following Jesus Christ. Think of uh, yourself as being in a race, and you're at the starting line, and the pistol is fired, and off you go. You want to get started in the right way in this spiritual journey, in this race that we're all called to run. Well, what I've done is taken the truths that are essential for every believer to know, and I've broken them down in easy-to-understand English. The Start Bible is as though you and I are sitting together in a restaurant over a cup of coffee, and we're going through the basics of the Christian life, Christianity 101, if you will, and we're discussing these things. There's interaction. I'm trying to anticipate your questions and answer them. That's what the Start Bible is. It's friendly. It's uh, accessible. It's easy to get hold of. There's a lot of fast Take away truth, but yet, as you read through books of the Bible, you'll find entries on pretty much every page. And on some pages, there'll be three and even four entries on different categories that I deal with. One feature is called Live, messages that focus on various aspects of salvation. Another one's called Grow. These entries reveal key disciplines of the Christian life and much, much more. So listen, get your hands on one of these. I've been working on this for three years. I hope that it will be a blessing to you. It's the Start Bible. All right, and we have them in stock and ready to go. So can we send one your way? We're making it available to those who can support us right now. In fact, would you consider becoming a regular supporter of the work we do here at Harvest Crusades in a New Beginning? Those who support us each month are called Harvest Partners, and they're really the close friends we can depend on to help us with the regular monthly expenses of bringing you this broadcast each day. If you've come to depend on Pastor Greg's teaching each day, would you be one that we can depend on for a small gift each month? You can get the details online at harvest.org. And to new Harvest Partners right now, we're sending the new Start Bible New Testament. You can write us at A New Beginning, Box 4000, Riverside, California, 92514. Or give us a call at 1-800-821-3300. That's 1-800-821-3300. And you can order online at harvest.org. Next time, more about the Holy Spirit, including the six ways we can actually sin against the Spirit. Important information coming next time. It's a new beginning. The preceding podcast with Greg Laurie was made possible by Harvest Partners, helping people everywhere know God. Become a Harvest Partner at harvest.org.
There you can arrange to receive Pastor Greg's free daily email devotions. That's harvest.org.